0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It's good to see all of you. Uh, we are in the last week of a series that has lasted a long, long time. We've been in the series called Apocalypse uh, for the last 11 weeks. We started by uh, spending a few weeks in uh, Ezekiel, and then we did three weeks in Daniel. And then we've, over the last four weeks, we've been uh, in the book of Revelation. And uh, it's been a really a lot of fun to uh, experience these books uh, together and walk through these books that oftentimes can be very confusing, uh, can be unclear, can be, have some violent imagery, but be, beginning to say that it's part of God's Word, uh, it can speak to us into our lives today. And so I hope that all of you have enjoyed this series as much as I have. Uh, last week we celebrated um, our, our big uh, kind of Christmas service, which was Cosmic Christmas. And again, I want to remind you, we do have a Christmas Eve service uh, tomorrow night. But our, our big kind of main event Christmas service was last week. Uh, Cosmic Christmas. I hope that all of you enjoyed that. We had a a great time putting it together and worked very hard on that. Uh, In fact, I want to uh, just publicly say thank you to uh, two people that were uh, instrumental in making that service happen. The first is our worship leader, Justin Jones. Uh, He was uh, a great help in putting that service together. Uh, And then also a member of our worship team, uh, Taylor Webster, who's right up here, did a great job uh, and just coming alongside and, and helping to plan all of that. So uh, I want to say thank you for those, to those two people uh, for the work that they did in helping us, uh, in help making Cosmic Christmas happen. Uh, in fact, at the end of Cosmic Christmas, we uh, in, invited people to come to know the Lord. Uh, some for the very first time, some... Uh, maybe to rededicate their lives. Maybe they were a person of faith, have walked away, and and, uh, maybe the service last week, and through the service last week, God spoke to them and uh, invited them back in. And and I'm uh, just thrilled to report to you that last week we had two people rededicate their lives to Christ, and one person indicated that they made a first-time decision uh, for Jesus Christ. So praise the Lord for what God is doing uh, in this church and through this ministry. Uh, We so appreciate that. Let me give you just a a broad sweep of where we've been so far in Revelation, and this is a great way to end uh, today. We're going to be talking about the second coming of Christ. Uh, but we started out uh, in week one uh, by saying that there's really three keys to understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, and the first one is we've got to understand that this book is a particular kind of genre. Uh, that genre is apocalyptic or apocalypse uh, genre. Uh, ancient apocalyptic books have a very common imagery. Uh, there's, there's a lot of similarities between other books that are written in this genre. And uh, they include things like uh, using... Animal kind of animal based imagery. Uh, they include sort of this cosmic scale that everything is just huge and broad and the, like this sweeping sort of message. Uh, and so when we come to the book of Revelation, we really need to understand what we're reading. And what we're reading is. An apocalyptic book. An apocalypse, uh, the word does not mean the the war to end all wars or the war to end the world, but rather the word apocalypse actually means a revealing or an unveiling. And so what's being revealed is the person of Jesus Christ, that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we ought not to be caught up in, in trying to fill out our timetables and our charts, but we ought to be caught up in worship of the Lamb who was slain, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The second key was understanding its historical setting or the original audience, that this book is written to seven real churches that actually existed in history. And uh, they would have had to have understand, understood this book. And so uh, we, we've got to keep that in mind when we're seeking to understand this book. And then third of all, it is highly symbolic that, that we can't take a literal reading of Revelation. We have to understand, begin to try to understand the symbols. Well, after that, then we talked about the Mark of the Beast. And uh, what we essentially decided there and what we came to understand is that the Mark of the Beast is not barcodes or skin implants or any of that, but rather it is, is, it is a way of describing, it's an image that the author was using to describe a cultural kind of religion. That is to say, it, it, the Mark of the Beast was a demonstration of allegiance to the Roman Empire. And so the challenge for us as we read this is is that our, our, what are the ways in which our faith is influenced by the empire or by the culture that surrounds us rather than being infu- influenced purely by the kingdom of God and our relationship with Christ. And we also were very surprised to find that in Revelation, everyone bears a mark. That right after it talks about the mark of the beast, it talks about being marked by the king. And so everyone has a mark in Revelation. The question is, whose mark? Do you bear, and so that's where we've been so far. And then, uh, of course, uh, last week for Cosmic Christmas, we uh, looked at Revelation chapter 12 and and uh, this uh, crazy imagery of dragons and pregnant women and all of this kind of stuff. And we had a lot of fun with that. Um, so today, what I want to talk to you about is uh, the end of the journey of these apocalyptic books, and it is the second coming of Christ. But before we do that. Uh, I think it's important that we understand some terminology. Not only does the word apocalypse not mean the, the, the war to end all wars but means unveiling or uncovering, in the same way, uh, a word that we use quite often, we probably don't understand, and that is the word Advent. A lot of us think that Advent is a fancy way of saying Christmas. Like, if you want to be part of the high-profile club, you say Advent. You don't say Christmas. Uh, you don't say Christmas season. You don't say Happy Holidays. You say Advent. Um, but Advent actually has a meaning, and the, and the meaning of the word is Coming. Or arrival. And and so when we have the Advent season, what we're really celebrating is the coming or the arrival of Jesus. And, And so Christmas calls us to remember all the ways in which the world has been dramatically changed as a result of the first arrival or the first coming of Jesus Christ and and we read in scripture and we sing about it in Christmas carols and all of this this truth of Emmanuel which means God with us it it means so much that God intervened into our human history that he showed up that he came to save us through his son Jesus Christ and and what we learn is that Jesus came to establish his kingdom God's kingdom now and and, and now through the advent conspiracy movement we get a chance to give money away to be a little less material Realistic, as our culture would say, right? Our culture says Christmas is all about materialism, all about the gifts that we're going to get. And we flip that up on its head and we say Christmas is a great opportunity for us to enter into a profoundly different kind of worship than our culture. Enter the gospel story, practice generosity instead of just this, this greed and flip it upside down And it, as a way of celebrating that Jesus came and the world is forever different. Are you with me? And so that's really what Christmas is all about. That's the Christmas narrative of of Christianity. But what we often overlook, because we don't understand this word Advent, is that Christmas also calls us to anticipate Jesus' second coming. And, And so Christmas is really twofold we we stand sort of in the in the middle one on one hand we remember the significance of Jesus coming and and how his his coming has profoundly changed the world and and how there's sort of this dividing line in history right there's before Christ and then there's after Christ there's and so it's like the the coming of Jesus is this dividing line in history so we look back and we remember that but today i want to do the other thing which which is what Christmas calls us to do, and that is to now look forward, to to anticipate, and and, and we wait for the second coming of Jesus, not with sort of an empty anticipation, but but with an anticipation that that is full of hope and full of life for what Jesus is going to do when he comes again. Now, again, the second coming of Jesus has all kinds of images and uh, attached to it. Uh, most popular in our culture is the second coming of Jesus is, is this idea of the rapture and, and it's uh, this... this Whole thing about all the, in in a moment, planes will be emptied and automobiles will turn into missiles as they drive into the highway because they're without their drivers and and parents will be left without kids and kids being left without parents and, and who among you will be left behind or and if it's not if it's not that imagery, then a lot of times the second coming of Jesus, the images that we have attached to that are exactly the way that our culture has come to understand apocalypse, which is sort of scenes of destruction and despair and and, and this this world just just caught. In warfare all over, and all you see is violence all around, and this is the second coming of Jesus, but but what I want to argue with you and what I want to show you today is that the second coming of Jesus is not images of people being beamed up into the sky, it's not images of destruction, but rather the second coming of Jesus is images filled with renewal. It is a world without evil, a world without tears or sadness or death. It's a world where the lion and the lamb will lie down together, where creation will no longer be violent with natural disaster, but instead be in perfect balance. And so whatever view or whatever image you have of Christ's second coming, I would want to argue with you that, that all of those images the underlying theme, the underlying hope is this. It is, it is the idea of the presence of God. The presence of God. Whatever image you have, whatever belief system you, you hold as to the second coming of Christ, sort of underlying as a foundation, central to those things, are this idea that, that when Jesus comes again, we'll fully experience the presence of God. And this comes out in, in, most particularly and most pointedly when we lose loved ones, right? And, and so when, we, when our loved ones pass away, we say things like, they are in a better place. And what we're really trying to do in those moments is find the words to articulate that right now they're experiencing the fullness of the presence of God. We don't know exactly how to say it. We don't know exactly how to articulate it. We don't even know exactly what it means or what it looks like. And so we just come to say, in trying to grasp some sort of way to articulate this, we say, oh, they are in a better place. And what we're really saying is right now, they're in the presence of God so when we come to this idea of the second coming of Jesus, central to all of that is the presence of God. And you know, the presence of God is an interesting thing. When someone commits to reading the Bible for the very first time, many people will, will try to read it cover to cover. In fact, some of you might do this after right off the first of the year, and you'll make a commitment to read through the Bible in a year. And rather than follow a reading plan that will kind of jump you all over the place, you want to get it all in sort of this grand narrative style. And so some of you very ambitiously on January 1st will start in Genesis and read chapter 1, and it will be awesome. And then you'll read chapter 2, and it will be awesome awesome and then you'll you'll read about the beauty of creation the goodness of creation how adam and eve are in perfect relationship with god how they're fully experiencing all the presence of god in perfect relationship and then you get to genesis chapter 3 and then you'll realize this story has drama right because all of a sudden things go wrong and there's a conflict and sin enters the world and this beautiful world this good creation that was perfect where adam and eve were in perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with God was all of a sudden broken and it's lost. And what we realize is that at the, in the first three chapters, you have established this great narrative, this beautiful world, but a world broken in which the rest of the Bible is seeking to bring us back to where we started. Now there's still movement, there's still progression, but ultimately what we're trying to do is get back to the innocence of the pure presence of God. Are you with me? And in fact, you'll, you'll read the rest of Genesis, and it will have high drama. After the brokenness of the sin, you'll read about a brother who killed his brother, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, this is just like a Hollywood movie. Why don't they make a movie out of this? Hollywood doesn't have any fresh ideas of their own. Why don't they make a movie out of this, right? Because everything is a book first, and then a movie. Everybody knows that. And so why isn't Hollywood getting all over this? Because this is a fast-clipping narrative, and everything is going Great. And you'll read about Cain and Abel. Those are the one brother killed the other brother. Then you'll read about Noah, flood, world destruction. Awesome. Blockbuster movie, right? And you'll read about Joseph. And you're like, this is a great book of drama. And then you'll get into Exodus. And even the beginning of Exodus, you'll be like, this is awesome. Moses, plagues, Ten Commandments, all this stuff. Mount Sinai. And then... Then you will hit a list of rules in the book of Exodus that will no doubt take the wind out of your sails in reading the Bible through in a year from cover to cover. You will read about really important things like what to do if you want to sell your daughter as a slave. Now, hold on. Maybe I should read that section. I've got two daughters at home. I'm just kidding. Okay, so then you'll read like what happens when an ox gores someone to death. And you're like, man, this is really applicable stuff because just last week, my neighbor's ox killed somebody on the block and I need to know what to do. And then you'll know what you, sh- what you should do when your enemy's donkey has collapsed because this is really critical stuff. And now, uh, let's just be honest. Many of you will be discouraged and many of you, when you try to read the Bible cover to cover, will in fact Give up. Now, I don't encourage you to read the Bible through cover to cover. That's a very difficult way to read the Bible for this very reason. But if you were to keep reading in Exodus, what you would find is that the remainder of Exodus is actually a great narrative about God dwelling with his people, with his presence. You see, Exodus is all about the God who rescues his people from Egypt. The The nation that God had formed was in, enslaved in Egypt. And then they were they were brought out of Egypt through the miraculous signs of God. And, and then they were brought through the Red Sea, through, through God intervening in, in fantastic ways. And then he gave them a law at Mount Sinai. And the, and the law was a way of establishing this is the way that, that you should live. If you want to be in right relationship with me, if you want to honor me with your life, these are all the ways that you can, can live and and the ten Commandments okay, we got that that's that 's nice and easy, but what you 'll find is chapter after chapter and rule after rule and, and and all these things going on but But then what happens is after Sinai we come to we, we, we come to the part where where God begins to talk about the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is is for God to dwell. With his people. That's precisely what the tabernacle is. It is God's dwelling with his people. And so in Exodus chapter 25 through 31, seven chapters, what you get, now this is hard to read, but it's significant in the whole narrative of the Bible. What you read are detailed instructions for what the tabernacle should look like. The dimensions, the materials, how they're to be fastened, all of these kinds of things are coming together. Detail after detail after detail of what God's dwelling place ought to look like. And you get this sense after seven chapters that this is God's house. This isn't just any house that's being built. This isn't just any, any kind of building. This is God's house. And the materials and the, the, the fine materials that are used speak of his holiness. The attention to detail point out his majesty to us. And what essentially what we learn in Exodus is that the tabernacle is God's location on earth. You want to know where God is in the Old Testament? He's in the tabernacle. That's his location, and so we have the outer court where the sacrifices take place, where where you would have uh, sacrifices of of animals of. You would have grain offerings and sin offerings and all of these kinds of things. Those all happen in the outer court. And then you get further deep and then you get a little deeper into the, into the tabernacle. Then you get a little deeper and then all of a sudden you're right in the center of the tabernacle. And it's a room that is perfectly square and it's the Holy of Holies where the presence of God actually dwelled and where the high priest would enter into that room once a year to make atonement for the sin of the, of the whole nation of Israel. And this is what the, the high priest does that in the Old Testament and then in Hebrews the, the preacher the author of Hebrews begins to walk us through all the ways in which Jesus is now our high priest that God has that Jesus has entered the most holy of holies not, not one by made by human hands but the one in heaven where he has made the perfect sacrifice for you and I a sacrifice once and for all and so what we learn is that the tabernacle is pointing us to something it's showing us something it's foreshadowing it's moving us somewhere and, and part of what it does is it shows us the, the role of the high priest so that we can understand that Jesus is our high priest. But the other thing that it does is that this tabernacle in Exodus that's hard to read and discourages you and that makes it so that by about mid-January or maybe mid-February, you give up on your Bible reading plan and get back into old habits. What it's actually doing is showing us that it is God's desire to dwell with his people. It is God's desire to dwell with his people. So, right from the very start, we have God dwelling with His creation, Adam and Eve, in perfect unity. That presence, that unity is broken. And immediately after forming the nation of Israel, God is on a plan to get back to dwell with His people. And it begins with the tabernacle. You want to know where God is? He's in the tabernacle. So it signified for us God's presence. But let me tell you, it was a limited presence. Because you had to go into the temple to experience the presence of God. God had a location on earth. Now to us, this seems very foreign, right? Because we can experience the presence of God wherever we go. You're at work, you're at school, you're in your neighborhood, you're at church. You can experience the presence of God. Right now, God's Spirit is dwelling here with us in this service. And right now, God is dwelling with His presence in all, service, all these Christian services all over this city and all over the world. And so this idea that God had a location on earth is quite foreign to us. But this is how it was in the Old Testament. God's presence was limited to the temple. Well then, fast forward to the New Testament. In the Gospel of John. And John, in chapter 1, verse 14, tells us this. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Now the Word is Jesus. And John wants us to, to make it very clear to us that, that Jesus is not part of creation. He was incarnated. He, wasn't, uh, he, he was made flesh. He was preexistent. And so this is Jesus made flesh. The word was made flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. Well, you want to know something really neat? That word in the Greek literally means tabernacle. It's a way of saying that that, that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us he tabernacled among us the word dwelt literally means tabernacle and so Christmas is a celebration of that God is, is present here with us in the form of the person Jesus Christ that's why the, the Christmas is the dividing line of all of history that's why Christmas is so significant because God who was confined to this building the tabernacle or the temple and, and was confined of the Holy of Holies, inside of that, all of a sudden is enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ, and he intervenes human history in a way like he's never done before, and now all of a sudden he is dwelling among us. That God put on our our skin, our weakness, our limitation, all of these things, and he dwelt among us. This is a way of saying that God does not just dip his toe in the pool of humanity to get a taste of what it's like. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, dives in to our mess to redeem us. That's the beauty of Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas, is that God came to us in the form of a man, and then he lived a life and did a ministry that defined for us What is the kingdom of God? And and Jesus, central at the very beginning of his ministry and central to his ministry is this message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's not a way of saying that if you'll just believe in a certain set of facts about who Jesus is, you'll go to heaven someday when you die. It's a way of saying that Jesus is on a mission to change the world, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he teaches us to pray. He says that your world is full of brokenness and, and despair and disappointment and betrayal, and I am here to make all of those things come untrue. And then he calls a bunch of followers to himself and says, let's go on a mission to, to take all the brokenness of the world and, and make it come untrue in the name of Jesus, in the name of the God who loves you, in the name of the God who has come to dwell with you, in the name of the God who desires to have his presence among his people, let's go on a mission and change the world world and then the church is born and that's the purpose of the church the purpose of the church is not for us to get together let's talk about what we already agree on and then pat ourselves on the back and have a nice day the purpose of the church is to share good news with a world that needs to hear it and so the and that all begins with this truth that God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Man, may we not lose focus not only of what our job is as a church, but may we not lose focus of what this holiday is all about. And so Jesus was born humbly, but then he lived a life that defined for us what the kingdom of God looked like. And it looked like people who are healed. It looked like no one goes hungry or thirsty in God's kingdom. It looked like sin's. Being forgiven. It looked like injustice being met with God's gracious justice. And so, first, God's presence comes to us in a building, but his presence was limited. And then, second, his presence comes to us in a man who tabernacled among us. But even then, his presence was confined. Anyone who was around Jesus could experience the presence of God. But his, again, his, his presence was confined to the location and the person of Jesus. And so after his death, Jesus, after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus promises that he would send us uh, someone to be a helper, someone to be a counselor, and he sends us the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 2 records the coming of the Holy Spirit when the presence of God is finally poured out among all people. No longer do you have to go to the temple to experience the presence of God. No longer do you have to be in the same historical, physical location as the man, Jesus Christ, to be in the presence of God. But now, because of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, the presence of God is absolutely unhinged. It's set free. It's released. This is the beauty that when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the temple curtain is cut in half. This is a, a very symbolic way of saying the presence is now available to anyone, to all people, everywhere. That's good news. But not only that, not only is God's presence no longer limited, but available to anyone who would confess Jesus Christ as their Savior. And not only is God's presence no longer confined, His presence is available to all people in all places at any time. But it goes even further than that. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. It isn't just that the presence of God is around us through the Holy Spirit. It's that the very presence of the creator God is now inside of us. Now, I would argue that if the church could capture this one point, that the world would be dramatically different and that the church would be far more effective if we realize that the power that rose Jesus from the grave is inside of each of us that confessed Jesus Christ as Savior through the Holy Spirit, we would never be the same. So many times we fall short and, and, and we, we don't live as though we have this great power of God inside of us. To work through us as his conduit. But the spirit of God guides us. The spirit empowers us for right living. The spirit convicts us. The spirit is active in the world. Uh, The the spirit has all kinds of roles to play. as As the presence of God is unleashed in the world. And yet. You and I don't always feel the presence of God do we? It's okay, you can be honest, it's church. <laughs> right? I, I mean, we, we have this grand truth that the presence of God is unleashed in the world through the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the presence of God around us, it's actually the presence of God is made available to live inside of us, to, to guide us, to correct us, to convict us, to empower us, all of these things. And yet, the, the, un, the unavoidable truth, and, and in light of the truth of God, maybe the discouraging truth, Is that you and I don't feel the presence of God all the time? In fact, the presence of God in this context is inhibited. So, first we have a presence of God that is limited because it's in a certain location. Then in Jesus, we have the presence of God, but it's confined. Then Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and now the the presence of God is, is available to anyone, and yet it's inhibited because of the evil in the world, because of our own ability to discern God's presence with us. I'm not making any statements about whether or not God is present in your life. He is. It's not a shortcoming on God's side. It's a shortcoming on you and I and being able to discern his presence and feel his presence and experience his presence because our brokenness inhibits our ability to fully feel God's presence in our lives. To, to be able to fully discern his presence in this place, in our, in our daily lives, we are broken people. And so the, the, the presence of God in our lives is inhibited. I want you to get a sense of the whole narrative of Scripture. That in creation, we have the unbroken presence of God with Adam and Eve. We don't get a lot of details in, in, the, in the Genesis narrative, but the details that we do get is that, that they were walking together in the garden. In the goodness of creation, just ex, just enjoying Relationship with one another, but then that relationship that 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 perfect unity that perfect presence of God is broken through sin and so we have creation which is the unbroken presence, we have sin which is the broken presence, we have the tabernacle which is the limited presence we have Jesus who is the confined presence we have the Holy Spirit who is the inhibited presence and when we understand the scope of where scripture is leading we understand that the whole story of scripture leads to god dwelling with his people with an unlimited unconfined and uninhibited presence it is the desire of god to dwell with his people do you hear me this morning It is the desire of God to dwell with his people. Now, whether or not you want to dwell with him, whether or not you're comfortable in his presence, it is the truth of God that he loves you, that he desires relationship with you, and that he desires to dwell with you and through the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Now, if I was God, I would not make that choice. The world is far too messy and I am far too broken. If I was the perfect presence of God, I would not want to dwell in an imperfect person. And yet this is the God that we serve. A God who loves us deeply enough to dwell inside of us. Not to look down on us in pity because of our brokenness, but to look down on us with grace and compassion and in all of his perfection to seek to take our brokenness and undo it. In the same way, that he, that The ministry of Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God, and then he builds the church so that there would be an organization to go about and declare the good news to the world and make all the sad things come untrue about the world. He can do that for you. And that's his desire for you. See, some of us feel like we got to get all of our stuff together before we can walk into the presence of God. Or some of us live broken lives. We come to a church service. We come to a Christmas service. We experience the presence of God. We sense the presence of God. And it makes us uncomfortable because we're not in relationship with Him. We aren't sure what to do. Well, let me tell you, God can do awkward. And He's not put off by the fact that you're uncomfortable. By his presence. In fact, it is his desire for you to just give him permission to come in. To enter into relationship with him. That he might begin to get to work. And, and, and help heal those, those wounds that you've experienced in your life. To help, to help bring redemption out of the broken pieces of your life. This is the God that we serve. A God who desires to dwell with his people. Some of you are like, I thought this was a sermon series on Revelation. It is. Because God's unlimited, unconfined, and uninhibited presence is precisely what we get at Jesus' second coming. And we can read about it in Revelation chapter 21. I want to turn there with your Bibles. Some of you are like, that was the longest introduction ever. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay, Revelation chapter 21. Now, true to this entire series... I could not find just a short couple of verses that I want to read out of this chapter. And so stick with me. We're just going to read the whole chapter, okay? So our our text this morning is Revelation chapter 21. And uh, it's got some hard pronunciations. I'm going to fake my way through it. Give me grace and we'll all be better for it. Okay. So here comes Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now we've referenced that verse several times in this um, series because of the uh, ancient apocalyptic use of the imagery of the sea as being the source of evil. And so when we come to Jesus' second coming and we're, we're talking about God's new world, God's new creation, there is no sea. That's an ancient apocalyptic. Does that mean that the, the God's new creation won't have any water? No, not necessarily. It just is a symbolic way of saying that the source of all evil is now gone. It's been replaced. It's been done away with. And so there is no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. This is the beautiful picture. I gotta stop. I gotta stop. This is the beautiful picture, right? Because God did come to dwell with us. The Word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. But now, in Revelation chapter 21, with the God's new world coming in, we get all the fullness of God's presence. And now, they will be God's people and He will be their God. You, uh, let me tell you what, there, there are uh, any number of gods in our world right now. Would you agree? But only one true God. And so the truth that this passage is pointing us to is now the fullness of God's presence is among His people. And because of that, there will be an unbroken relationship between the two. They, We will be His people, and He will be our God. The struggle of idolatry is over in God's new world. I love this passage. And then... He gives us the result of those things. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the mission that Jesus began when he declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was the mission of making everything new. And right here in Revelation, we see the completion of that mission. I am making everything new. And then he said, write it down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is done. The mission is accomplished. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Come on, if that does not make you think about Advent Conspiracy where we give money away to to give people fresh water without cost to them. It's, It's a cost that we take on. It's a cost that comes out of the abundance of what God has done for us. And then we demonstrate God's blessing and God's gracious activity in our lives by giving away out of our abundance that we may give water to those who are thirsty without cost. And in God's new world, That will happen so that no one is thirsty and no one is hungry any longer. I'm going to try to make it the rest of the way through. Now, those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But not everyone, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, For this is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and he said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away uh, in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone like the glory of God. And in its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had Um, a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there were three gates on the east, three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And then the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square As long as it was wide, and he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as as wide as it it was high, and as it is long. And then he measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by human measurement, because that's what the angel was using. Uh, And and then uh, the wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass, and then the foundations of the city Walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl. I should have had uh, a special reader read this. The ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And then the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Then we get, after all of that detail, we get some further detail. And it makes you wonder, do these details echo the details of the tabernacle? We get all these details about the tabernacle. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Yeah, 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 next chapter, next chapter, next chapter. Got it, got it, got it, right? But then we come to God's new Jerusalem, God's new creation, and we get detail after detail after detail. Is the author trying to say something about the presence of God? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives It light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring forth splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life. Let me walk through this passage very quickly this morning. I don't want to keep you very long. Uh, We could probably do a whole series on this chapter alone, but I want to just point out some details that I think are significant. It begins with this city coming down out of heaven. And with this truth, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their god. This has been God's desire all along. Is to dwell among his people, to dwell in unbroken relationship with his creation, to get us back To where we started. Now, I want to point something out to you, though. A lot of times we we tend to think that we just want to try to get back to Eden. All we're trying to do is go back to Eden. There are there are principles and concepts of Eden that we want to be restored. Primarily, the unbroken presence of God. But there is still movement in the story. We start with unbroken presence of God in a garden. We end with the unbroken presence of God in a city. There is still progression to the story. The story is still going somewhere. In other words, there's still, there's still a responsibility that you and I have in God's good world to order, to, to put together, to fashion. This is part of God's ongoing creativity. And in fact, a lot of people say, well, what will heaven be like? Because I don't really want to just sing holy, holy, holy all day long, all eternity long. That sounds pretty boring. And I said, I agree. That sounds like hell to me. I mean, I love singing, but that doesn't sound very good to me. I would be bored, to tears in that environment but what the the truth of god's new creation is that you and i get to participate in the ongoing creativity of god god is a creative person and so work will have its full fulfillment in god's new world we'll have all kinds of things to do we won't be bored playing harps dressed in wings i don't look good in wings and i don't look good in white That was a side note, by the way. That wasn't even in my notes. I need to get, I need to get back here. God's desire all along has been to dwell with His people. In other words, His plan has never been to snatch His people away from where, uh, 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 snatch His people away to where He is, but to dwell where the people are. That has been his pattern all along. The tabernacle goes to where the people are. Jesus comes to intervene human history. The Holy Spirit is poured out among all people. These are all ways of intersecting human history with his presence. And it is no different in God's new creation. He's going to intercede fully and finally to bring his full presence, to bring all the redemption that he has been working on, to bring his kingdom in all of its fullness. The result, again, is he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. The thirsty will receive water without cost from the spring of life. There is no temple needed. Right? There's no tabernacle needed in God's new city. Why? Because the tabernacle was the location of God within the city. And now, the city is God's presence. God's presence flows throughout the city. Fully, finally, in perfection. There's no need for a temple, no need for a tabernacle in this kind of city for the whole city is now the place of God's presence. The city is also in the form of a cube. And remember when I told you the inside the tabernacle, outer court, inner court, holy, the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, that room was shaped like a cube. And so will God's new city actually be in a cube? I don't know, because that's really high. But that's not the point. The point is he wants to point us to the fact that not only is there no temple, but this city is, is, is in the shape of the Holy of Holies, that his presence is all over this city. It's unbroken, it's unlimited, it's unconfined. There's no sun or moon, for God himself is the light. There's a lot of darkness for the light to overcome this Christmas. Would you agree? There's a lot of darkness in our world. There's a lot of darkness in our nation of things that are going on. There may be a lot of darkness in your life. But even the darkest darkness cannot overcome even the smallest light. If we were to make this room pitch dark and light a candle that candle would pierce the darkness like it was nothing and part of the truth of the god's new creation is that there will be no darkness no night it says because the light is so bright that there is not a shade Or a shadow of darkness that can come in. That's a beautiful picture in this world that we live in where there is so much darkness to overcome. And you know, part of me have you ever um have you ever been on the beach on vacation and got up early enough to watch the sunrise while you're sitting on the beach? I've done that. Amy thought I was crazy, but I did it. It is one of the most beautiful sights you will see. And then how about when the sky turns orange at sunset in Colorado? Isn't that gorgeous? Some of you are like, that's bronco orange. Oh, shut up. I grew up in Kansas, and I love the burnt orange sky of Colorado. But Kansas has phenomenal sunsets. They're absolutely gorgeous. And then some of you love birds, have gone stargazing. And you see the beauty of the night and of the moon. And so when we come to this detail that there's no sun and there's no moon, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because those are pretty... Beautiful parts of creation. Why would God do away with those if we're to take this literally? And if if not, if it's just symbolic, then that's great, and we'll enjoy our sunsets and our stargazing. But I think it points us to an even greater truth that even the best parts of creation are pointing us beyond themselves to God's new creation. That, that may be part of God's creative order in, in giving us the sun and the moon and these sources of light are in a sense just a, a way of pointing us to the real light of Christ, to the real light of God's unbroken presence. Now some of you says, oh, that's just mysticism, that's weirdo kind of stuff. There's, there, that doesn't mean anything. Except for in Romans, Paul says that if we look at creation, we will see the very presence of God. That Paul himself says that that creation itself points beyond itself to a greater reality of who God is. So there's no sun or moon in this God's new creation. Because God himself is the light. And then there's no more night. And the gates are always open. Well, the gates were used in a city to uh, defend the city against intruders, particularly at night. Because during the day, people were going in and out of the city. They were they were they were doing some traveling. They were going to the market. They were doing all these kinds of things. They were moving inside, in and out of the gates all the time. But at night, to protect the city, the gates would close so the intruders didn't come and attack the city or overcome the city or besiege the city. And so the gates were there as a defense. But in God's new creation, these gates that, are, that were used as symbols of, of understanding the pearls and, and these, these beautiful jewels and all of these things. They're no longer used for defense. They're just decoration. (laughs) I love that. Because it's pointing us to a a world where number one, there is no night. There's no threat. And therefore, there's no need for defense. How much of our lives do we operate in defense of being hurt from an intruder? Some of you came here today utterly broken and you're at church so you decided that you had to put on your happy face that is closing the gate because of the night you're afraid that if you were to really open up to someone they might intrude on you and so you put up the gate and so much of our lives are lived this way we're wounded we commit that that will never happen to us again So we close the gate and protect ourselves from the night. And the beauty of God's creation is this. God's new creation is, number one, there is no night. And so there's no need for a gate. And the beauty of that, and ultimately what that means, is that we will be in pure and authentic relationship with one another with no need to hide who we really are with nothing and and because sin and evil and everything is no more we have nothing to hide come on church that is good news that's good news and that's what life is like in God's new world <clears throat> so what's the point Well, part of my point and part of my motivation and part of my hope today is that just by simply talking about God's new creation and God's second coming is that we would be inspired, that we would be filled with hope, and that we would be filled with anticipation for that day when all of these things that we've talked about this morning will fully and finally come true. But we can't just purely live in the future. Have you ever heard the saying of someone, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? That's a way of saying that your your focus is so out there that you're missing right here. And so part of my motivation today is I want to tell you, Here's what's out there. Here's what's coming based on the promises of God. Here's the good world that God is bringing about. But what's the point right now? Well, the point right now is if that's where the story is going, if that's where we know God is headed, if we can can trust this book and we can, and this is where God is going, then, then what are we to do now? Well, we're to live in ways right now that anticipate the world that is to come. And this has everything to do with how you do Christmas, has everything to do with how you treat people, and has everything to do with the decisions that you make now. So I would encourage some of you to look at your own life and say, what are the ways in which my life demonstrates the old order that is going to pass away? And what are the ways in which I can replace that with the new thing that God is doing? Now, we will never be able to fully replace those things, okay? There will always be things about our life that point to the old order. But the point is to become aware of those things and try to allow God in so that those things might come untrue in our lives. And this is the work of, this is the continual work of God in our lives. Many of you have known Christ for decades and he's still working. Many of you have known Christ. Christ, just for weeks, and he's hard at work in your life, bringing about these new things. The other thing that we can do is, is begin to express this new creation to other people, and to help them, and to come alongside of them, to be a, a healing people. You know, a lot of, a, a lot of people um, look at the recent shooting in Connecticut and say, man, what can we do? What is the church to do? And, and on one level, I want to confess to you that there's not a lot we can do. I mean, how do you come alongside of, of moms who lost their six-year-olds to 11 bullets in one little body? How do, how do you help that? But on a broader level, I think what the church can do is become a place of healing. that that if we became very intentional about really becoming a place of healing in our culture, then maybe those things would happen a little less. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe in the power of the church? Do you believe in the promises of God's new world that is to come? If we do, then we can begin to live in ways right now that express that new world. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the Ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit the Roadfc.org and click online giving.